a, just a little bit of foresight and a lot of luck. Managed to have some hedge positions on some U.S. financials in the form of puts, which offset some of the losses, but still had one of the most destructive and painful experiences of my life. And, and it nearly shifted me out of the business. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Adam Butler. Adam, are you ready to rock? I am. Thanks for having me. Yeah, let's go. Well, let me tell the audience a bit about you. Adam Butler is Chief Investment Officer of Resolve Asset Management. Resolve manages ETF and future strategies, including a global risk parity ETF, two global adaptive asset allocation funds, a managed futures fund, and a multi-strategy hedge fund. Adam is author of the book, Adaptive Asset Allocation, Dynamic Global Portfolios to Profit in Good Times and Bad, and contributed to the best investment writing volumes one and two. And he is ranked in the top 1% of authors by papers downloaded on SSRN. For those listeners who don't know SSRN, it's a great resource for academic papers. And he's authored over a dozen papers and dozens of articles. And Adam, like myself, holds a CFA charter as well as a CAIA charter. Adam, fill in any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, sure. So what I think we were chatting a little bit earlier. I think it's kind of interesting that my wife and I spent a little time in Bangkok as well. I taught math and physics at Bangkok Christian College for two years, and my wife taught grade five literature to English immersion students. Absolutely one of the most powerful, positive experiences of our lives. And we'd sure love to spend a lot more time in Thailand. Wrote my level one CFA. Well, I studied for it while I was teaching in Thailand, and I had to travel to Singapore to actually write the exam. I don't know. I guess they probably have facilities to write the exam in Bangkok or around Thailand now, but they did not at the time. Definitely, they have it now. And man, it's expanding. Uh, people from uh, Vietnam and other places have had to come to Thailand, but now we're seeing test centers spreading throughout you know, Southeast Asia. But yes, at that time, imagine you had to travel to Singapore. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, it was a bit of fun. And I had never been to Singapore and I would look forward to getting back there. But Completed my charter when I got back to Canada, and our company, Resolve, is based in Toronto, and we're on the other side of the earth from you, and glad that you're able to make it work for our time zone. Yes, it's my pleasure to have you on. So now, it's time to share your worst investment ever, and since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Yep, great. So. When I came back to Canada, I wanted to be a portfolio manager. I ended up working at a private wealth shop in Ottawa for a little while and until I got my discretionary license. And I was running uh, strategies based largely off the themes that I had been reading for many years by a man named Don Cox, who was working at Harris Bank at the time and wrote a monthly missive. It was 30 or 40 pages long his thesis was that there was going to be this long-term, multi-decade commodity supercycle coincident with the rise of the middle class in emerging markets, primarily China, India, Brazil, 
and Russia. And so this thesis provided for a profound shift in diet, a profound shift in the consumption of resources and infrastructure. And so we expected to have a massive shift in demand for things like iron ore and concrete and also a shift to a a protein diet and therefore all of the grains and feedstock that was likely to be required to sustain that sort of shift for several billion people in the developed world. And so had a very concentrated bet on in uh, fertilizer stocks, in energy stocks, such as the Canadian oil sands, which had the longest reserves of any unconventional oil resource around the world. And I went right down the rabbit hole in terms of oil supply demand dynamics, the oil, the curve that with oil reserves were supposed to run out over the next 15 or 20 years, and then what that was supposed to do to global energy resources and prices, and was sort of all in on this thesis. And so in 2006, 2007, and through early 2008, I became more and more concentrated and more and more convinced of the veracity of this thesis, right? I mean, one of the most destructive and ironic things about investing is that you can be right for a very, very long time before you are catastrophically wrong. And so coming into mid-2008, coming off of two or three years of very, very strong returns for clients, I did not see coming the tsunami of pain that erupted during the global financial crisis, where all of my commodity-related positions went south at the same time. And just through the grace of just a little bit of foresight and a lot of luck, managed to have some hedge positions on some U.S. financials in the form of puts, which offset some of the losses, but still had one of the most destructive and painful experiences of my life. And, and it nearly shifted me out of the business. <laughs> oh my God. When you think about it from the beginning to where you ended and you had to potentially exit these positions or exit this view, how much had amount that you were investing fallen by? And then my second question is, how did you have to, were you forced to exit these positions or did you hold on to them? Or, you know, I talked to some people in my interviews and like, yeah, that was 10 years ago and I still own all of that. I just can't sell it. (laughs) Yeah. And I think if you've got a diversified portfolio, which we probably circle back to, absolutely the right call is to understand the fundamental drivers of long-term growth in that portfolio and that you should, and in fact, need to hold on to those investments over the very long term through the painful periods in order to realize the long-term growth. But with the concentrated portfolio of just a small number of mostly commodity-oriented stocks, you know, that just wasn't reasonable. And eventually, both my clients and I capitulated on a lot of those positions and I was left rudderless for several months after the crisis as I sort of picked up the pieces and tried to figure out what had gone wrong, both internally in terms of my framework for decision-making and externally in terms of how the markets operate. Yeah. Well, then that leads into the next question, which is, you know, what are the lessons that you've learned from this experience? Well, I don't know how long you've got, but I'll try and crystallize it with one pivotal 
shift in perspective that I had. You can imagine once you go through a crisis like that, it's almost like having PTSD. I had clients contacting me by phone in the middle of the night, three, four in the morning, other portfolio managers calling me in the middle of the night, up all night watching the overnight news, what was happening in Asia. It was a really shocking and and jarring experience. And I came out of it really doubting my own expertise and the value that I could produce for clients in this business. And as a result of that, I became really receptive. I was at a state where I was really receptive to alternative ways to think about the problem. And it was at that time that I stumbled on a presentation by a guy named Philip Tetlock. Are you familiar with Dr. Tetlock's work? No, no. I stumbled on it as part of this series by the Long Now Foundation, Stuart Brand out of San Francisco. But Dr. Tetlock's story was absolutely fascinating and and was completely pivotal for me. So he graduated from a degree in applied psychology from one of the Ivy League schools in the 80s, went to work in information think tanks in Washington for several years. And his job coming out of grad school was to be sort of the secretary. So he would take down notes on what all the senior generals and senior policy officials and politicians in the room would say it at each quarterly meeting. So what was going on in the Russian polyboro? Who was rising to prominence? What were their policy views? What were the impacts on U.S. foreign policy? So all of these experts in the room would have these strong opinions on what would happen and how they should react. And so they'd go from quarter to quarter, and then he would document the views that came out of this meeting, and he would read out those views at the next meeting. And what he realized fairly quickly after just a few years was that at each meeting, he'd read out the forecasts or predictions from these experts from the previous meeting, and then they'd spend the first half of the next meeting making excuses for why those forecasts did not play out as they'd expected. And it was all about counterfactuals. They know, well, anybody can see in retrospect that if so-and-so had not stepped in front of, then this person would have found power more quickly or what have you. So scratching his head, he decided, I'm going to go back and spend the next 15 years investigating whether or not anybody can make well-calibrated forecasts in complex fields. And that's exactly what he did. He went back and did his PhD and spent the next 15 years interviewing 180 experts, posing 100 questions each to try and get a a probabilistic grip on just how well humans are at forecasting in, in complex domains. And the results of that story or of that study were absolutely fascinating. Mm. Well, that's a, a good, not, don't leave us hanging now. We want to know. Dr. Tetlock, I'm already going to be looking this up on my uh, Amazon, but the point that I always say uh, when it comes to forecasting in the market, and I'm actually holding up in my hand my PhD dissertation from China that I did, which the title of it is An Empirical Study of Financial Analyst Earnings Forecast Accuracy. (laughs) And I was trying to forecast, you know, I was trying to identify across every analyst in the world over a 13-year period whether they were accurate or not. And my number is 25, 25% meaning they would forecast that companies would make 125 in earnings and the companies would actually make 100. So, and that's of course a 12 month forecast. You can be much more accurate if you try to predict what's going to happen tomorrow, but over a 12 month period where it gives us time to get into a position, the accuracy. Now of what I learned about that in that dissertation too, is that the forces that are on analysts are so strong that they almost have to take a positive view and they almost have to be wrong. But in a somewhat of an unbiased situation, what did Dr. Tetlock find? How successful are are humans? 
That's great. I, I love that you did that study. And I don't know if you've seen any of the books by James Montier, who has published a lot on behavioral investing and the folly of forecasting. But yeah, he shows similar studies of forecast accuracy and forecast overstatements and regression to the mean then in earnings forecasts as the mm. uh, year progresses. Uh, but Philip Tetlock, so just to set the, the stage, he rounded up 180 experts, average education level, master's degree, average experience of 16 years. These are top experts in weather forecasting, economic, politics, military forecasting, etc. And he formulated these really well-crafted questions. So will the Soviet Union push into the Ukraine by more than 50 miles in the next three years? Yes or no? If yes or if no, what is your probability or what confidence do you ascribe to your forecast, right? And so a perfectly calibrated person in their forecasts, well, when they gave us 60% probability that something would occur, over many forecasts, we should observe that occurring about 60% of the time. That would be perfect calibration, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got 180 experts with 100 questions each over 15 years. You've got pretty large sample size, 18,000 questions. And so he documented the results of this study in a book called Expert Political Judgment, which you can absolutely download from Amazon. And I'll just sort of summarize some of the key takeaways. So number one being that on average, experts were less well calibrated than will be expected from random guessing. That is true of individuals, but it is also true of the average. The average was better than most individuals, but the average guess was still less well calibrated than will be expected from random guesses. There were no outliers. Not one expert that was making forecasts over the period demonstrated any meaningful ability to predict. And even more strange, experts making forecasts in their own domain of expertise were less well calibrated than those who were asked to make forecasts outside their domain of expertise. Some other more concerning results, experts that were cited most frequently in media or in papers, less well calibrated than those who toil in obscurity. And so he also ran some very simple systematic models alongside these experts to make forecasts. For example, in the short term, simple regression models, the current trend will prevail in the short term. And over the long term, we will expect a regression to the mean. And what I realized was that these mapped very directly to the type of systematic investing strategies that have been demonstrated to be very effective over the long term, namely momentum or trend following investing and value investing, right? Where you're buying the companies that have deteriorated the most in expectation that the market has overestimated the just how bad their forward earnings are going to be. And in fact, they go on to do a little bit better than expected, right? So that really nudged me in the direction of systematic thinking in general. And then I moved on to what are some of the most well-documented ways to make decisions in markets in a systematic way. Okay. So we're going to get towards the end here. I'm going to sum up a few things, but I want to come back and I'm going to ask you, normally I ask the question, what did you learn from that experience? But from the story that you told, but I think I would like to ask you to prepare yourself for this, the question after this question. And the question after this question is going to be, how can the average Joe listening to this podcast benefit 
from what you've learned from all that we've just discussed. But before I do that, let me summarize some of the things that I take away from your story. The first thing is that, you know, the key to investing usually is developing a thesis and investing following that thesis, researching it, and then trying to, you know, invest in that thesis. And you constructed a very logical thesis based upon what you learned initially from Don Cox, and then you built yourself. And what happened was that you became more convinced over time in that thesis. And I think that one of the things that I take away from this is that we have to be careful because sometimes just the longer that we research a particular area or thesis, we can become more convinced. Not because the evidence is any more or less powerful, but because we become more and more familiar with the thesis. And the two words that were ringing in my head when you were speaking was peak oil. Mm -hmm. And that was part of a thesis at that time. So I think one of the things that I would like to take away myself and for the listeners is that just knowing a subject more deeply and more deeply and more deeply does not mean that you're going to be able to correctly and accurately predict it. And so that comfort in the depth of knowledge of something, you need to be careful about that. Now, the second part is the concept of super cycles versus short term. There was parts of your super cycle views that were very correct and that, that worked over a period of time. And you could say, still, that super cycle exists. The increased consumption of protein, as you mentioned, demand for grain and feedstock, fertilizer, these super cycle elements still exist. But the problem is, is that sometimes you can go through a short-term period that could last months, years, decades that go against that super cycle. And so I think the lesson that I take away from that is great to have your super cycle, understand it very well, but know that other countervailing forces can go against it at times. And I think that's kind of my biggest takeaways. Is there anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit some really important points, which one of the most important points being the more you investigate, the more you invest your time and energy and effort into gaining a better understanding of a thesis, the more you want that thesis to play out. And therefore, the more you're likely to seek confirmation or confirmatory data, and the less likely you are to absorb or internalize disconfirmatory data. And so it becomes this really dangerous feedback cycle. Also, the more that you learn about a subject, the more confident you become in the outcome. Whereas so many studies have demonstrated that you can investigate a, a random deck of cards for as long as you like. I used to work with a guy who told me a story about a famous investor, Ed Zakota, that my friend mentored under. And to start him off, he would sit the analysts in a room and give them an hour to look at a deck of cards. And then he would come in and he'd have them shuffle the deck of cards and he'd ask them to predict the card that was at the top of the deck. And the analyst would say, you know, I don't know. And he'd say, okay, I'm going to give you another hour, right? And he like the lesson being, no matter how much you try to investigate and gain knowledge about a random process, it's not going to make you more effective, right? So mm. this is one of the great liberations of a systematic process is that it liberates you from having to create theses and then spend many months, quarters, years, et cetera, building the confirmatory evidence for that thesis only to see it get destroyed 
and it just is so hard to let it go when you need to. Yep. Got it. And then the other question then is how can somebody benefit from this concept of, you know, your depth of knowledge in the understanding of where people can be successful or not in predicting and what should people do? You know, sometimes when I talk to people about analyst accuracy, they go, so what are you telling me? Don't predict. What are you telling me? You're telling me build up knowledge and prediction and then I'll become one of these people that has overconfidence bias and then my predictions and my confidence, my prediction won't change, but my confidence in my prediction will change. So help the listener with some actionable thinking about how they should think about prediction. Yeah. So, I mean, the absolute number one fundamental takeaway I would like to leave is that diversification is the best protection against ignorance. And so many investors believe they're diversified or are not well equipped to understand what diversification really means. And we think that you need to think about diversification as owning asset classes in the portfolio that are fundamentally designed to do well in very different macroeconomic environments. So for example, global equities are fundamentally designed to do well during sustained periods of upward growth shocks benign inflation and abundant liquidity conditions. And we've had those conditions in play, especially in the United States, for many years now, not so much in the rest of the world. Last 10 years have not been so kind to non-US equity investors. But you go through periods like the 1970s, like the current period in emerging markets, et cetera, where you don't have positive growth shocks, but you have negative growth shocks, where you've got inflation that runs out of control in either direction. There are other asset classes that are fundamentally designed to do well in those very different macroeconomic environments, such as high-grade government bonds from places like the United States, Europe, Japan, etc. Commodities fundamentally designed to do well during certain types of stagnating inflationary environments. And so, you know, you don't just want to diversify among stocks within your own home market or even among global stocks. You want to expand into global government bonds, global commodities, and it takes some knowledge and experience to figure out the way to achieve maximum diversification from all of those different assets in the portfolio. And only then, once you've got a well-diversified portfolio, should you begin to sort of dig into the academic literature and investigate some systematic ways that you might be able to tilt your portfolio in one direction or another in order to achieve better results. But it all starts with diversification. Okay, that's great. So diversification across economic environments and also the concept of taking, in other words, don't take your bets until you've got a diversified portfolio, as you've said, tilt your portfolio and take a a measured bet and know that that will protect you from if you are wrong in that bet. The last thing I'll wrap this up with is just a reminder. You talked about the random process and how no amount of investigation of a random process will make the outcomes any less random. It reminds me of one of my amazing teachers I happened to study under, Dr. Deming, who taught about quality. I went to a few of his seminars when I was a young guy, and I wrote a book called Transform Your Business with Dr. Deming's 14 Points. But he talks so much about the random process and the idea that most people, most managers, not fund managers, but managers in general, but just most people in general, have no real understanding of randomness. And even when they do, they still act as if they don't. So I think the study of randomness and the awareness of randomness is a great takeaway from this 
discussion. So, all right, there we have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Adam, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losses, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, thank you, Andrew. It's cathartic, actually, to share your experiences of loss and renewal. So I appreciate the opportunity to come on and share. Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.